I'm Althea Brooks and I'm Director of Lifetime Learning uh, in the Office of Engagement. Um, now I'm going to introduce uh, Professor Paul Friedman. He has earned his PhD from the University of Michigan. Uh, he's Associate Professor in the Woodrow Wilson Department of Politics here at the University of Virginia where he serves as Associate Department Chair. Professor Friedman teaches courses in public opinion, media and politics, uh, voting behavior, research methods, and the politics of food, which you'll hear him talk on to, uh, this afternoon. He's founding member of the UVA Food Collaborative, um, and he's also the recipient of the University of Virginia Alumni Board of Trustees Teaching Award. Uh, Professor Friedman uh, has served as the first Edward L. Ayers Advising Fellow. Uh, Professor Friedman is co-author of the book, Campaign, Advertising, and the American Democracy. His work has appeared in numerous academic and popular journals. Professor Friedman uh, has served as research director for the Pew Project on Campaign Conduct at the Sorensen Institute for Political Leadership and was a senior scholar at the Pew Partnership for Civic Change. That's a mouthful. Professor Friedman uh, currently serves as the academic director of the Morvan Summer Institute, and he sat on the board of the Jefferson Institute. And he just told me that he's teaching a course, what, five days a week at Morvan right now throughout the summer. Um, since uh, 2000, and about 13 years now, Professor Friedman has served as the um, election analyst for the ABC News in New York. So please help me welcome uh, Professor Friedman here to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I want to thank Althea, but let me assure you that I felt welcome even before the applause. I want to welcome you back to Grounds, and I want to especially uh, welcome some familiar faces, people who I haven't seen uh, in some cases for a while. It's a, it's a real pleasure for us to see you come back, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk uh, a little bit after, uh, uh, after, after these remarks. Um, I want to have a discussion. I have some things to say, and those of you who've taken my classes know that I usually have some things to say. Uh, today I want to talk about the politics of food, and I want to say a few, um, share some ideas about what I call food citizenship, and I want, to, I want to think about what that might mean, what that might entail. When I tell people that I study the politics of food, and when I tell them in particular that I teach a class called the politics of food, this is the... Uh, the answer I usually get, the politics of what? People are puzzled, confused, uh, can't imagine why anybody would want to study food, the things that you know, keep us going and that we, we encounter every single day. But I suspect that because you're here, you're not one of those people. I suspect that you are one of the people who thinks a lot about food, who thinks a lot about the political context of food. Maybe you've read The Omnivore's Dilemma or seen a documentary about food and the food system. Maybe you shop at the farmer's market. Maybe you think about the ingredients of the food that you eat, consider where it comes from, consider the implications of your food choices. If so, you've come to the right place, but you're also very atypical. Most people, most of the time, don't think much at all about their food in a political sense don't connect their food choices to any larger food system. And what I'm trying to do is to, is to change that. What I'm trying to do is to put the uh, 
thinking about food, the discussion about food, and indeed the study of food into a political context in particular. And so today I want to take a, uh, take a shot at doing just that. I came to the study of food in, a, in an odd way. I'd always been an eater. I've been eating food most of my life. But that's not the reason I started teaching about food and reading about food and writing about food. I started writing about food and thinking about food and teaching about food because for a long time I'd been teaching a class that some of you in this room are familiar with, media and politics. That class, and by the way, I apologize if it's hard to read this, I tried to be patriotic using UVA colors and then I came to the rotunda and thought, hmm, kind of hard to see. So if you want to move up, move up. I'll try to say everything that's up on the screen. I've got some words, I've got some numbers, I've got some pictures. Hopefully they'll be visible, but you are welcome to come up and move closer if you can't see it. Media and politics is a course that I want to talk about for just a moment. Some of you took this course when it was PLAP 314. But that's how long you've been gone from the university. It's been multiplied by 10, right? There's, all, there's an extra digit in each of our classes now. It's now PLAP 3140, and I started teaching this class, Media and Politics, because it struck me that media consumption is something that most of us do every single day. We consume media content. We make choices about media content, and most of us do so habitually without thinking too much about it. Few of us wake up in the morning and say to ourselves, hmm, what media outlet shall we explore today? Some of us do, but we're atypical. Some of you, I suspect, do that. Some of you are very self-conscious about your media diet, but again, you are atypical. Most people consume media, and in particular consume news media, uncritically, habitually, without putting too much thought into it, and part of the rationale for teaching a class at UVA called Media and Politics is that we thought, I think, that citizenship demands that you are critical about your media diet. What we discover in this class is that the media system is produced, is shaped, is created by a combination of market forces, supply and demand, but also political decisions. Decisions made by political actors at all levels, but in particular legislative actors, regulatory actors, and of course judicial actors, because when there is a conflict among values uh, in our system, and there are many conflicts among media-related values, those conflicts often end up in court. And so when we study media and polit politics, we're able to use it as a lens onto the political system in many different ways. To understand the media system is to, uh, requires us to learn about the political system in many different aspects. There are many concerns about the quality of the product when it comes to media content. Questions of bias, questions of the tabloid, tabloidization, if you will, uh, of our news media, concerns that the quality of uh, of print media is not just eroding but disappearing, uh, and the quality of journalism across the board has declined. We need to study that. We need to pay attention to that. We need to think about the implications of that, uh, not just for the media, but for our political lives and our ability to act as democratic citizens. I'm going to connect this to food. Get there. Get there. 
Um, there are concerns in particular about large corporate ownership of the mass media. We have lots of choices as citizens and as consumers. Consumption patterns have implications for, as I noted, our ability to do our jobs as citizens. If we want to function as democratic citizens, we need to know something about the political world. We need the raw ingredients with which we can formulate opinions, judgments, and which enable us to act politically. The conclusion of the class, and I hope you guys remember this, those of you who have taken the class, is that democratic citizens should become informed and self-conscious consumers of media content, critically evaluating the dominant media system, and importantly, thinking about alternative models and asking the questions, what sorts of alternative models might we envision? And what would it take to move from where we are to where we might be? All right, this is the starting point for my thinking about food and politics, because as should be obvious to you, when I now teach a class called PLAP 3160, the uh, food and politics, I am confronting uh, many of the same building blocks, many of the same starting points, uh, daily consumption of food. Even more universally than daily consumption of media, people eat every day. And pretty much everybody does so, right? That's very convenient for me. Because nobody's off the hook. Everybody does this. Everybody is implicated in the system, is a participant in the food system. Uh, for many people, again, present company probably excluded, eating food is habitual and is uncritical. Most Americans eat food because it tastes good, because they're hungry, because it is available, affordable, and accessible. That's how most of us think about food most of the time. The food system and the specific components of the system, like the media system, is shaped by a combination of market forces and by the decisions made by political actors at different levels and in different branches. If you think that the system has nothing to do with what Congress is doing this week as it considers, right, on the floor of the Senate, the 2013 farm bill, you need to take this class. Because in fact, Congress is right now making decisions that have profound implications for our food choices. And those decisions are just the starting point. Because once Congress has acted and the president has signed uh, legislation about the farm bill of 2013, it's supposed to be the farm bill of 2012, but they didn't get around to it. So they just put it on hold until 2013. Once that has happened, then the action begins. When it comes to the food system, the regulatory decisions made by executive branch agencies like the US Department of Agriculture and the Food and Drug Administration and the uh, Department of Health and Human Services have a great deal to do with the sorts of food that is available to us in our communities, in our stores, and elsewhere. Many people raise concern about the quality of the product. And I'm going to talk about one set of concerns shortly. Right? That the system is delivering content, in this case, food content, that's bad. Right? Or at least making it more difficult for us to access higher quality, better content when it comes to food. There are concerns about large corporate ownership with respect to the food system. 
controlling big pieces of that system, right, with questions about the implications for the rest of that system, including actors in the system. We have lots of choices, right? If you think we have a lot of choices in the uh, media context, we have easily as many and certainly more, I would argue, in the food system. Consumption patterns have implications for democratic citizenship. That is an important theme for me, but consumption patterns have implications that go beyond democratic citizenship. I want to talk about that in just a moment. Whoops. Uh, the conclusion of this course is that democratic citizens should become informed, self-conscious, critical consumers of food, should critically evaluate the dominant food system, and importantly, explore alternative models. When it comes to writing and thinking and talking about food, there is a large body of work that critiques the dominant food system. I mentioned Michael Pollan's work earlier. He is a critic of that system. He has a lot to say about that system. And increasingly, and in some ways, for me, more interestingly, we have people beginning to explore different systems, different models. And I'll have a few things to say about that momentarily. I'll note, though, as Althea uh, mentioned, I, I came right here from a class that I'm teaching up at uh, Morvan Farm uh, as part of the Morvan Summer Institute. And the class is designed to teach students how to do research at farmers markets, because we think that farmers markets represent a potentially important piece of an alternative food system. I'll say a little bit more about that later. Okay, um, There are some key differences. When it comes to media, as I've said, consumption patterns matter. What we see, what we read, what we hear, what we consume through the media can shape what we know, what we understand, and how we understand the political world, and how we act politically. Can the medium make us sick? Maybe they can turn our minds to jelly, but probably only in a figurative sense. The food system can make us sick. The food system can make us sick in at least two ways. It can make us sick quickly because we ingest something that makes us ill immediately, or it can make us sick uh, slowly because the way that we eat, the kinds of foods that we eat over longer periods of time have negative consequences for our health as individuals, and more importantly, from the perspective of the politics of food, negative consequences for public health. And I want to talk about some of them uh, shortly. Consumption patterns, though, have implications in the, in the context of food, not just for us as human beings directly. They have consequences. They have implications. They have unintended consequences for the environment, for water and soil quality, for climate change. There are estimates that agricultural production uh, worldwide contributes, some people are now estimating, up to a third of all climate change emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. I think that's a little high, but there are real, uh, there are important arguments that there are implications for energy use, and for climate change from the way in which, the scale on which, the scope of our, uh, that we do ag agricultural production. Animal welfare, concerns for uh, worker safety, worker conditions, 
uh, including important questions about immigration, are all implicated by the food system. Uh, and certainly, all of this affects our budget in very consequential ways. The farm bill that Congress is considering now, will they are estimating, will cost $100 billion a year for the next 10 years. And that is almost surely an underestimate. We're talking about a lot of money. We're talking about decisions that we should be paying attention to as citizens of and participants in the food system. Okay. So the starting point for understanding the politics of food is that the food system creates a range of externalities in terms of health, in terms of the environment, in terms of energy use uh, that we ought to be cognizant of, that we ought to take seriously uh, externalities that are the result of decisions made by political actors and externalities that will require attention from the political process. Right? They will need to be solved by decisions made by political actors. All right, I want to talk about Coca-Cola, because how can we not when we're talking about uh, the nature of the food system and, importantly, the consequences of the food system? And some of you know where I'm going with this. Show of hands if you're from New York City. All right, a few of you. All right, well, then this will be very familiar. You, you're already anticipating right, where we're going to end up here. We're going to end up right in the lap, figuratively, of Mayor Bloomberg. Right? Um, Coca-Cola, what's Coca-Cola? What is Coca-Cola? Yeah, Coca-Cola is sugar, right? There's a little bit of other things, water, flavoring, colors, right? Somewhere in a, in a, in a, in a bank vault in Atlanta, there's a secret recipe. But when it comes down to it, soda is sugar. And soda is a lot of sugar. In this 12-ounce, well, not this 12-ounce, but, but in a 12-ounce can, of Coca-Cola, we've got 39 grams of sugar. Right? That's not a secret. I, I got this from the Coca-Cola website. Right? 39 grams of sugar. When I was a child and I got lucky, I got to put a teaspoon of sugar on my cereal. Right? And if I got sneaky, I got to put two. Right? Um, and you can imagine what that cereal would taste, even if it was like, you know, Total or Cheerios, like not something that started out really sugary to begin with, right? Think about what three uh, teaspoons of sugar would be like on that cereal. Pretty sweet. So 12 ounces of Coca-Cola, 9.3 grams of sugar. Again, it's not a secret. That's a lot of sugar. Not as much as uh, a 20 ouncer. And when I look around the seminar room or the lecture hall and I see what my students are drinking, it's not 12 ounces. Right. By the way, prior to the 1960s or 70s, it wasn't 12 ounces. You had 8 ounces. And before the 1950s, the normal soda was 6.5 ounces. Right? So we're talking about a huge increase in the quantity of, uh, of soda and consequently a huge increase in what we consider to be a normal amount of sugar to consume. By the way, <clears throat> there are... 65 grams of sugar in a 20-ounce soda, 20-ounce Coke. Not a diet soda, obviously, a Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola Classic, 15 and a half teaspoons. And I've seen students in the course of one two-and-a-half-hour seminar have more than two. So they just con consumed right, 31 teaspoons of sugar. I like to think that you don't need that to stay awake in one of my classes. Maybe you do, 
And to be fair, I, I'm drinking coffee the whole time, right? So um, that's a lot of sugar. 16 ounces, which is an amount that will become important in a moment, is 12.9 tablespoons, uh, uh, teaspoons, excuse me, of sugar, 54 grams in a 16 ounce Coca-Cola. Sugar today here is corn. You can get Coca-Cola with sugar in it. You probably have to go to Mexico or another, um, uh, another country or wait until Passover. Do you guys know this? If it's kosher for pa Passover, you're getting sugar. Sugar cane sugar. But most of us, most of the time, are drinking soda made with corn, right? In the form of high fructose corn syrup. Why is that, right? And look, if you've read Michael Pollan or if you've seen Food Inc., you know that, in fact, it's in everything. And that's not an accident. That's not inevitable. That is the result of a set of policies, agricultural policies, agricultural subsidy patterns and practices that have made it, right, when they meet market forces, and they didn't come from nowhere, Congress gets lobbied, when agricultural subsidies meet market forces, it becomes cheaper to produce Coca-Cola with high fructose corn syrup than it does with sugar. With, sugar, with cane sugar or beet sugar. Now, uh, that's not surprising. There are arguments that people have made. There are studies that purport to show that high fructose corn syrup is metabolized differently than is regular old, plain old, good old-fashioned sugar. I can't speak to those studies. I'm a political scientist, not an actual scientist. Um, but I acknowledge that those are out there. We don't need to imagine that there is some magically fat-enhancing uh, property of, or, or to know or to uh, uh, assume that, there, that uh, uh, high fructose corn sweetener is uh, uh, metabolized differently, to recognize right, that, sugar, that uh, corn sugar, which is exactly actually what the corn industry now wants us to call high fructose corn syrup. They want us to call it corn sugar because that sounds better than high fructose corn syrup. Um, we consume a lot of sugar. And in fact, I'll interpret this for you. Um, these data go from 1965 to 2006. And what we see very clearly is that the daily calorie intake among children has shifted from milk to sugar-sweetened beverages. Now, this includes sugar soda, but also sugar-enhanced juice drinks, punches, um, energy drinks, etc. The story of childhood beverage consumption over a 40-year period is that milk goes from about uh, from a little over 300 calories per day to down to under 200 calories today, while sugar-sweetened beverages go from under 100 calories today. It peaks in, two, uh, uh, in 2002 at a little over 200 calories a day, doubling comes down a little, so now they're equal. Among adults, the lines crossed back in the late 1970s. Grown-ups don't drink milk in this country. We drink soda. Alcoholic beverages are not included uh, here. That's an important part of, uh, of, of adult beverage consumption, right? But with respect to what we're drinking, right, we're drinking soda 
were drinking sugar-sweetened beverages at much greater rate than um, Jews is. Now, since 2006, there have been some important changes. We're now drinking even more bottled water. Bottled water, right? Which is water wrapped in plastic. I mean, I guess I could have gone to the water fountain, but I could pay more for the convenience of drinking it. And I'm going to do that right now. It wasn't a demonstration. It was a need. Um, all right, so I want you guys to see this. Um, there have been real changes in consumption patterns with respect to both uh, children and adults. We are drinking more soda than we, are, uh, than we are milk, and we have done so for a long time. In 2010, per capita soda consumption in the United States of America uh, was, on average, 44.7 gallons. Right? Think about a 10-gallon fish tank, and then think about four of them, and then think about some more. Right? And that's how much, on average, we drink of soda. Of soda. Um, a small part of this is diet soda, but a very small part of this is diet soda. You may drink diet soda. You may know lots of other people who drink diet soda. But again, you're atypical. Right? I say this to my students all the time when what I'm telling them does not compute with their experience. Right? When you're a student at the University of Virginia, you're not like everybody else. And that's still true when you're an alum of the University of Virginia. Uh, most Americans who drink soda are not drinking diet soda. That's true for uh, adolescents, and it's true for uh, adults as well. Important thing to keep in mind is that uh, averages are averages, which means that for everybody who drinks less than 44 gallons a year, like people who drink zero, there are people who are drinking much, 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 much more. OK. So why does this matter? Who cares? It's soda. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Um, the United States government pays attention to us. The United States Center for Disease, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, part of the Department of Health and Human Services, located in Atlanta, does uh, what they call surveillance. Right? It just means monitoring. It's an uncomfortable wor word, particularly this week. Right? But it's uh, exactly what public health officials have done for a long, long time. They track behaviors. They track public health measures. And one of the measures that they track is obesity. Now, if you are trying to figure out, have Americans gotten more, less, or has there been no change in obesity, you need a measure. And the Centers for Disease Control uh, uses a measure that's not particularly good. It's called body mass index. I suspect that many of you are familiar with it. It is a, uh, the relationship between weight and height, right? And the formula is weight divided by height in inches, weight in pounds divided by height in inches squared times 703. And if that seems arbitrary, it's less arbitrary if you use kilograms and meters. Okay, so the 703 is just an adjustment. The problem with this as a measure of overweight and obesity is that it says nothing about physical condition. It says nothing in and of itself about uh, muscle mass versus fat. Um, and it is therefore a decidedly imperfect measure of what the government's trying to get at when it studies trends in overweight and obesity over time. Uh, in fact, I've had students, many, uh, in fact, of my, uh, of my athletes, 
particularly football players, are obese. But they're not obese. They're not obese in the way that, uh, uh, that the Centers for Disease Control uh, is concerned about. But they are atypical. So if we do this calculation, right, we come up with a number. If the number is below 18.5, you're considered to be underweight. Between 18.5 and 25, you are normal. 25 and above, you are overweight up to uh, the threshold of 30. And a BMI of 30 is considered by the federal government to be obese. Now, we could unpack this. We could argue about this. We could uh, worry about the utility of this particular measure, its flaws, wonder about better measures. And some people have begun to introduce better measures of the health status of a person uh, related to their weight. Uh, but this is the one that the government has used. And the advantage there is that we could look over time. The behavioral risk factor surveillance system, again, seems kind of ominous, particularly when we read the newspaper headlines this week. Um, the BRFSS, they're just utterly unconcerned about making it something that rolls off the tongue, right? The BRFSS began in 1985. And during that year, they had data from some, but not all, states. You can see that the, uh, the white parts of the country uh, are not reporting data yet. It's a new pro program. It's a new surveillance system. Um, and they're just not cooperating. But some states are. And we can see that states like California, uh, New York, North Carolina, Florida, they calculate based on, and we don't have to go into how they do it, but essentially they're collecting data from healthcare providers. There's a systematic sampling that is at the heart of this. And so we are going to simply take this as uh, factual, as representing reality, notwithstanding perhaps methodological questions that we might like to raise. Um, and so based on these reports, the uh, Centers for Disease Control identifies a number of states in 1985 in which between 10 and 14% of the population is estimated to be obese. Not overweight, but actually obese with a body mass index greater than 30, greater than or equal to 30. And they're just reminding us that for a person who is 5 foot 4, that's 30 pounds overweight. If you're 5 foot 9, it's more than 30 pounds overweight, right? But it meets the definition of obesity. Uh, in 1986, more states begin to uh, participate in the, uh, uh, in the survey. And you can see now uh, some states are popping around. They were maybe just at the 10% uh, borderline. And so they're going uh, back and forth between dark blue and light blue. But as we move on, and now in the, in the, uh, into the third year of the surveillance, we've got more states reporting, and we've got uh, actually a growing number of dark blue states. 88, there are more states reporting and a growing number of dark blue states. That keeps going. There's 1990, and there's 1991, there's 1992. What do you notice? The country is getting darker. And what that means is the country is getting heavier in a specific sense. A greater percentage of the population is obese in a greater number of states. And what you can see has happened here is that we've added a new category. Now, there are enough people in uh, states who are, uh, there are enough states with more than 15% obesity, right, that we've got a darker blue. One, two, three, four, five, six. 
1993. 1994, every state in the union has uh, weighed in, so to speak, uh, into the uh, surveillance system, and we've got major, a major part of the country in which more than 15%, as much as 19% of uh, the population is obese, with a body mass index equal to or greater than 30. 1995, 1996, 1997, we've got a new category because now three states, Indiana, um, what do we have, Kentucky, and uh, Alabama, Mississippi, sorry, Mississippi, don't tell, don't tell anybody. Um, don't tell Gary Gallagher who's out there teaching about the Civil War right, right now and now all. Um, over 20% obese by 1998, we've got additional states uh, joining that category. In 1999, the country is changing, right? The country is changing in a short period of time and it doesn't stop. 2000, now Colorado is the only state, the only state, and if you're from Colorado or if you know people from Colorado, you're not surprised. They're the last state with less than 15% of the population uh, uh, obese, uh, uh, obese, obese. Now we've got, uh, once again, uh, a new category, greater than 25% in 2001, 2002, uh, joined by two other states, 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006. We've added a new category. Two states in 2006 have more than 30% of their citizens uh, obese. 2007, Colorado's hanging in there. 2008, more states joined the 30% uh, uh, category. 2009, and finally, because they ended this particular data series in 2010, they changed their methodology, and so we can't compare it moving forward directly. Colorado's gone by 2010, and we have significant parts of the country where uh, over 30% of the population is obese. Nationwide, by 2010, uh, two-thirds of Americans are overweight or obese, right, across the board. We've changed our bodies in a short period of time. This time series goes back to 1980. Many of us in this room were alive in 1985. Some of us were drinking soda in 1985. Now, let me be clear. I'm trying to document a change. I think it's a profound change, I think, in terms of uh, the human body. My understanding from biology was that it took much longer to, to bring about fund, you know, generations to bring about such significant changes, and we've done a, a pretty good job of it in a pretty short amount of time. Now, I don't want to argue. I am not arguing that soda caused this. But I am acknowledging that many people do make that argument, and that many people recognize the consumption of soda and other sugar-sweetened beverages as at least complicit, at least an accomplice in what we have observed. All right, so what? Why do I care about that? Well, if I don't care about people or public health per se, I may care about budgets. I may care about taxes. I may care about what sorts of pressures and strains a healthcare system will endure, right? Affordable Care Act or not, Somebody is picking up the tab for the impact of higher rates of obesity, which uh, we know to be associated with all sorts of um, uh, health issues. Now, let me be clear about what I'm not stating. I'm not say, saying that people who are overweight or obese 
are ill or will become ill. We're talking about public health uh, analyses that demonstrate this. I'm very, I, I want to be really sensitive to this because I think it's very easy. One of the unfortunate um, implications of looking at data like this is that it's very easy to demonize and to point individual fingers, right, when that's not appropriate or relevant, right? We need to talk about system level behaviors, not whether or not somebody is making poor choices for themselves, right? You may be interested in that. I'm not, right? I'm interested in the systemic, the political, the public health, the budget decisions and implications, the causes and consequences of this. Well, <clears throat> estimates, estimates of the public health costs of obesity-related diseases. And again, that's hard to do. How do you know if somebody got sick, it's because he or she was overweight or obese? You don't, right? But you do analyses um, that attempt to quantify the implications of this. $147 billion annual, annually is, a, is, an under, is the low end, right? They go upwards of $170 billion, uh, and those are the direct costs. Um, we pay a lot of this directly through Medicare, Medicaid, uh, veterans' health care. Uh, much of it, though, is picked up by private health insurance, and so we pay for that as well, even though we can't see it, perhaps, because our employer is paying more or our share goes up in ways that are a little less visible, those costs add up. And they are real burdens for public, uh, uh, public finance and public treasuries. Uh, there are also indirect costs. When people get sick, they are not as productive. Right? And those costs are not figured into these estimates. We should take this seriously, even if we don't have a direct interest in questions of public health, Right? We should take it seriously if we have an interest in our budgets, in public finance, in the amount of taxes that we pay. All right, what are we going to do about it? And that's where the political uh, response comes in and becomes really interesting. It's interesting because when we're talking about politics, we are often talking about a clash of fundamental values and principles. When we argue politically, we are often arguing about really important values that come into conflict. This is true in the area of media politics. It's really true in the area of food and politics. And if you don't believe me, ask Michael Bloomberg. The nanny mayor. I asked somebody the other day, I said, how come, how come so many politicians have to act like nannies? And he looks at me and said, how come so many citizens have to act like children? That was a little ungenerous, but I took his point. I took his point. Um, the war on big soda began, well, in New York City, it began a long time ago, but it began most recently in 2012, when Mayor Michael Bloomberg sought to uh, impose rules, restrictions, a ban on large containers of soda. I put ban on, uh, uh, in quotes here, to emphasize that he wasn't trying to ban soda, and that, in my opinion, he lost the fight the minute people started talking about this as a ban. If there's one thing we won't abide as Americans, it's anybody banning us, right, banning anything. We don't ban. In fact, survey researchers will, will tell you we would rather um, not permit something, then ban it, 
we are much more likely to agree in, in studies, in public opinion studies, uh, with making something uh, unpermissible than with banning it, right? There are significant differences there. And so Bloomberg let this get away from him to the extent that he did not successfully push back against this framing of his proposal. It was a clash of values. I want to take you very quickly through a, uh, a brief timeline. Um, and the values were this. Public health, on the one hand, Michael Bloomberg cares about public health. This comes out when he talks about soda. It comes out when he talks about guns. He frames guns and gun violence and gun control, gun restrictions, in terms of public health. He's consistent in this sense. He also talks about it, and his administration talks about it, in exactly the public finance way that, uh, that I was just alluding to. Right? Public health problems in New York City become public finance problems. Because the city of New York joins the state in paying a big share of Medicaid for New Yorkers. It costs a lot of money when New Yorkers get sick. All right. On the other hand, though, we have some other really important values, like liberty, individual autonomy. Who are you to tell me how big my soda can be, Mr. Mayor? Uh, and the free market. Who are you to tell small businesses what they can sell and what they can't sell to their patrons, Mr. Mayor? This is how the argument played out. And what I want you to see is that while we might dismiss it as sort of funny, it's about soda and how big it can be, it's deadly serious. These are among the most important values that we hold as American citizens. Right? We need to think about how this all plays out. All right, here's what happened very quickly. One year ago, 13 months ago, in May of 2012, uh, Michael Bloomberg held a press conference. And he gave a three-dimensional version of what I just showed you. Here's how much soda, how many cubes of, of sugar, rather, uh, is in each side of so size of soda. So there's, uh, I'm assuming, like a 12-ounce, a 16-ounce, a 20-ounce, a 32-ounce, and then something monstrous that probably gets sold at 7-Eleven or movie theaters, right, with uh, just an amount of sugar that should be frightening. And I'm pretty sure that when you get this size at the movie theater, there's free wee refills. You can bring it back for more. <laughs> All right, so there's Michael Bloomberg, and he says straight out, obesity is a nationwide problem. All over the United States, public health officials are wringing their hands saying, oh, this is terrible. And then Bloomberg puts a New York spin on it, right? He says, hey, this is New York City. We're going to do something. New York City is not, wringing, uh, is not about wringing your hands. It's about doing something. And the thing that he wanted to do was relatively mild. He wanted to say that if you want this much soda, you've got to buy two of these instead of one of those. That was the proposal. That was the proposal. He didn't say you can't drink soda. He didn't say you can't drink 64 ounces of soda. He just said we want to make it harder for you to do that. All right. The sale of any cup or bottle of sweet, sweet drink larger than 16 fluid ounces would be prohibited. He didn't say banned, right? But that's what everybody heard in restaurants, fast food chains, delis, movie theaters, stadiums, food carts. But interestingly, and here's where politics comes in, uh, not grocery stores, convenience stores such as 7-Eleven. In part, the argument went that's because they were regulated in a different way and the state had regulatory authority uh, of those outlets in ways that this, uh, uh, they didn't for the other outlets. All right, that's the ban, that's the plan, and the uproar began immediately. The New York City Beverage Association, a significant 
player in the food and politics scene, um, not surprisingly, said it's time for serious health professionals, professionals to move on and seek solutions that are going to actually curb obesity. These zealous proposals just distract from the hard work that needs to be done on this front. All right, they didn't say they were going to do the hard work, but they're acknowledging that hard work needs to be done. And I read this as saying, hey, Mr. Mayor, your proposal doesn't go far enough. Right? Now, that's not what they actually said, uh, but that was their point. Um, I'm sure Mayor Bloomberg expected that the New York City Beverage Association would be against him. Uh, unfortunately, they weren't alone. Uh, the New York Times was also against him. The administration should be focusing its energies on programs that educate and encourage people to make sound choices. He didn't get the backing of the New York Times. That was too bad for, uh, for him. Um, my favorite response was uh, The Daily Show, John Stewart, who said, the proposal combines the draconian government overreach people love and the probable lack of results they expect. <laughs> As always, well put. All right, um, and indeed, in June, Right, shortly after the introduction of the proposal, 51% of New Yorkers uh, in a poll by Quinnipiac said, yeah, we, we, we oppose the ban. Um, in July, it got interesting. The American Beverage Association began its grassroots campaign. Why is grassroots in quotes? Well, it was completely orchestrated, organized, assembled, and directed by the American Beverage Association. We usually call such grassroots campaign, uh, campaigns astroturf campaigns, um, but there was, it was an effort to provide citizen voices, voices of small business owners uh, speaking consistently against the ban. Now, if you were in New York in the summer of 2012, you saw this on the back of every soda delivery truck, whether it's Coke, whether it's Pepsi, um, somebody else. Don't let bureaucrats tell you what size beverage to buy. Right? Join us, and there's their website. Uh, New York City, beveragechoices.com, and the logo is just beautiful. It's almost like a parody of itself, right? It's a silhouette, kind of, it's, rem not, it's reminiscent of the Statue of Liberty, right? But instead of a torch, there's a, uh, uh, there's a, so a 16 ounce soda, can uh, soda uh, cup, right? You get the point. We get it, American Beverage Association. Liberty is at stake here. Political scientists love these sorts of battles, right? Um, the stakes may be. The context may be very narrow, right? but the stakes are actually serious. And the, the rhetoric, the language, the values implicated are important. All right, uh, they begin anti-ban commercials on radio stations, and these I loved. Uh, there's one, this is New York City. No one tells us what neighborhood to live in or what team to root for, and you've got Yankees fans and Mets fans uh, screaming in the, in the background, right? So are we gonna let our mayor tell us what size beverage to buy? So now you're playing with fire, right? Now it's not a question of political liberty, right? This is as though the mayor, what's, what's next? He's gonna tell you to root for the Yankees when you're a Mets fan, right? Obviously, we would never stand for that. It's a very effective way to convey this idea that the mayor is intruding in really important, really personal decisions that are part of our identity as New Yorkers. All right, uh, by August, 60% in a New York Times poll of city residents opposed the ban. Um, in September, uh, the weight loss industry gets on board, which is really interesting because the weight loss industry is an industry. 
Coca-Cola in 2010 spent $2.9 billion on advertising. The weight loss industry, all told, is a multi-billion dollar industry as well, right? So they are able to capitalize on this controversy, uh, con controversy, <laughs> been a long day, um, on, the, on the controversy to remind us that they're on the side of public health. I'm not accusing them of being insincere, right? I'm pointing out that they become players in the discussion. All right, finally, in September, the Board of Health approves the mayor, excuse me, the ban, the mayor's ban. It's a, it's a vote, it's, it's unanimous, there's one abstention, right? but eight members of the Board of Health, all of them appointed by Michael Bloomberg, uh, uh, support the ban, and immediately um, uh, we hear the rationale from Bloomberg's public health commissioner. If this new step leads New Yorkers simply leads to New Yorkers simply reducing the size of one sugary drink from 20 ounces to 16 ounces every other week. It would help them avoid gaining, gaining 2.3 million pounds a year. Holy moly, Thomas Farley, that's huge, literally huge. And if we can reduce obesity rates in New York City by just 10%, it could save hundreds of lives a year and millions of dollars, he might have added as well. That's definitely worth it. All right, this is a reiteration of the administration's framing of the, uh, of the issue. Seems like a victory for the uh, uh, Bloomberg administration, but it's short-lived. The American Beverage Association sues immediately uh, to prevent implementation of the law. Uh, that was October. The law did not go into effect while, uh, the, while we awaited the outcome of the, uh, uh, of, the, of the case. The NAACP in January of this year came out strongly against the ban. That was interesting. It was interesting in part because uh, some of the rhetoric in favor of the public health implications of effects of the ban was framed in terms of the importance for low-income and minority populations and communities in New York City. But the NAACP says, no, we are opposed to the ban. There's an interesting history there. And in fact, part of it was written by uh, Professor Grace Hale in the history department here. She had a very interesting uh, op-ed piece in the New York Times that you can go back and look at, talking about the racial histories of Coca-Cola versus Pepsi. And there is a strong uh, and long history of, um, uh, of association between the NAACP and Coca-Cola. Um, not to say that that's the rationale, but it's part of the story. That was January. In March, the ban is about to go into effect on March 12th. And as things do, uh, they, as things often uh, uh, happen in politics, the day before it's scheduled to go into effect, it's struck down. Um, Milton Tingling, uh, uh, state Supreme Court judge, declares the ban invalid for a very interesting reason. He didn't even have anything to say about whether it would have worked. Actually, he did have some things to say about whether or not it was, uh, would have worked. He thought there were some loopholes. The key issue was that the Board of Health just went ahead and did it and went around the city council. And the judge said, That's, you can't make policy that way. You must go through the city council. Much to the chagrin, I think, of uh, the city council speaker, uh, uh, Christine Quinn, who probably would rather uh, not deal with this. Um, she hasn't, she's taken a stand against the ban. We'll see what happens as uh, her mayoral uh, uh, campaign heats up. For now, 
This is where things stand. Uh, of course, the uh, Bloomberg administration sued back, basically, um, and we will see what happens to its appeal of that ruling. All right, very quickly. That's the story of the New York City uh, uh, soda ban, the ban that wasn't, the ban that might be, uh, but the ban that was never a ban uh, in the first place. It might have been a ban, right? And that's something that we could do. We could say, all right, Commissioner Farley, if you're right, and if we're serious about public health in New York City, if we're serious about the public health consequences and the budgetary consequences of uh, obesity caused in part by the overconsumption, the 44.7 uh, uh, gallons per year on average that Americans drink of soda, just get rid of it. Let's ban it. We ban all sorts of things, right, that you can't sell, right, you can't. Heck, in the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, you can't sell a gallon of raw milk, unpasteurized milk. It's illegal, but you can sure as heck sell a gallon of Coca-Cola. All right, we can ban it. Or alternatively, we can say laissez-faire, right? No limits. People are adults. They can make up their own minds, and we will just deal with the consequences. Right? We're going to put our heads in the sand as to the externality uh, uh, involved. We're just going to say no limits. But those aren't our only options. Right? And we can think about the politics of food in this particular case, but other sorts of food more generally in terms of these options and then uh, what we might do in terms of political responses in between, one, how about warning labels on soda, right? Use of this product puts you at risk of obesity and obesity-related diseases. We do that with cigarettes. The FDA is trying to uh, uh, take the text on a warning label and, give, and, and, and turn it in some really, really graphic um, uh, 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 pictures on packages of cigarettes like one sees in other countries, right? Uh, we could do that with soda. We could tax it. Earlier, you heard from uh, Dr. Garson, or people in this room heard from Dr. Garson, talking about uh, 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 um, health care in America. Um, Arthur Garson has written about proposals to raise taxes on soda in order to, on the one hand, raise money for public health uh, to address public health consequences, and on the other hand, to deter excess consumption. And one of the things that uh, Tim Garson writes about is it worked for cigarettes, right? And he explicitly compares soda consumption to cigarette consumption and says it represents a similar public health uh, uh, threat and we should take a similar public health um, approach. Restrictions on advertising. We did that with cigarettes. We haven't done that with soda. Restrict uh, access among particular groups. You're not supposed to buy cigarettes if you're under 16 in some places, 18 in others, right? We make it really expensive to buy cigarettes. New York City, I don't even know what it is. It's like $10 a pack for cigarettes. Imagine if it was $10 a six pack, right? Particularly young people who are very price uh, sensitive. By the way, let me be absolutely clear. I am not advocating for that. I'm raising it as a possibility and saying that, so I'm not an advocate in this particular fight, at least not right now, right? I want us to think about these issues in these terms. Um, what else could we do? I think we could do a few more things. There we go. Um, Thomas Farley, the Commissioner of Health in New York City, has also proposed that if we're not going to ban or restrict soda, 
we should consider making it ineligible for purchase with Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program benefits, also known as food stamps. Why, he asked, and he was joined in this proposal by the State Commissioner of Health in New York, why should taxpayers subsidize the purchase of a, uh, of a beverage that many people refer to as liquid candy? Here's the thing about the calories in soda versus the calories in milk. Calories in soda are just calories. There's no protein. There's no vitamin D. There are no other nutrients. It's just candy. It's just sugar. And so they say, why are we gonna, why do we allow people to use SNAP benefits? Now, there are arguments in response, right? We're not gonna talk about that now. I'm raising this as a possibility because Farley says, we're paying twice. We're paying for you to drink it and then we're paying to take care of you when you get sick from it. Um, finally, people say, well, what if we just made healthier things more available? What would that look like? And what that would take would be a very different set of decisions by political actors acting in the food system. All right, I want to end with uh, just a few comments about what we might, how we might think of things differently. Wendell Berry has an article, and if you don't know who he is, find out. He is, uh, uh, he's a farmer, he's a philosopher, he's a poet, he's a, I think, political scientist. Berry, in a really beautiful chapter called uh, The Pleasures of Eating, writes that there is a politics of food that, like any politics, involves our freedom. We still sometimes remember that we cannot be free if our minds and our voices are controlled by someone else. But we have neglected to understand that we cannot be free if our food and its sources are controlled by someone else. Barry wants us to take back our food. The condition of the passive consumer of food, passive, uncritical, unaware, unmindful, is, for Wendell Berry, um, not a democratic condition, small d democratic condition. One reason to eat responsibly is to live free. And for Wendell Berry, eating responsibly is being informed, being critical, being what I call a food citizen. Becoming a food system, uh, citizen means that we recognize that the choices that we make when it comes to the food that we eat have implications that go beyond our meals, they have implications that affect our community, our environment, and our fellow citizens. That's the first step, to recognize that, right? Also, um, that we make informed choices when it comes to what we eat, but also when it comes to how we act politically. We often hear a reminder that when it comes to food and food politics and policies, we vote with our dollars, right? But that's how we act as consumers. As citizens, we vote with our votes, which means that we should think about the politics of food when we make political choices. Some of us are gonna be making political choices on Tuesday here in the Commonwealth, right? Are you thinking about the farm bill, food policy, the politics of food, our relationship to the food system? So, come on. Um, I want my students, I want all of us to learn about and question the existing food system and explore alternative models. I want to ask, and I'm going to close with what I was doing today, uh, what is the potential for local food systems, not to replace, but to grow and to supplement 
and to offer healthy food in healthier, more sustainable, and more democratic ways. So what does it mean to have a robust, vigorous farmer's market that accepts SNAP benefits versus not having such a place? What does it mean to have schoolyard gardens where children learn that food comes from the ground? Not just, uh, it's not just something that you unwrap, right? Take the plastic off of. What is the potential for all of the really phenomenal energy and creativity that we see here in the Charlottesville-Albemarle area, but we see all over the country to try to come up with alternative food models, alternative food systems, and to really build a robust understanding of what it means to be a food citizen. So I'm going to end with that, and we can open things up for questions. Thanks. So if you'll just... So if you'll just wait for me to arrive with the microphone before you start speaking so it, it makes it onto the podcast. Do you have any idea how much of the corn that's grown in the United States goes to the soda industry? And then if everybody today quit drinking sodas altogether, um, how many yeah, jobs um, are there from Coke and Pepsi and like distribution that would Yeah, this is an excellent happen? question. What percentage of the corn that's grown in this country goes into soda? What would happen if we stopped drinking soda? Would our corn production look different? Uh, and my answer is uh, almost certainly no. The amount of our corn harvest, that, which is phenomenal, by the way, if we do nothing else well in this country, we can grow the heck out of corn. right? <laughs> The amount of our corn production that goes to the uh, uh, production of high fructose corn syrup is, um, I don't know, it's under 5%, it might be under 2%. Do you know what most corn goes into? Into cows and into cars, right? In 2009, two-thirds of the corn grown in this country was either turned into ethanol or turned into feed for cattle. Cattle, which, as you might know, actually don't eat corn unless we force them to, right? So it's really quite interesting. Um, as far as the politics of corn goes, everything I've been talking about today represents a fairly small piece of that. Any other questions? The current farm bill, can you talk just a little bit about the I guess, the history of the Farm Bill and how we're, you know, at a point, one, that food stamps or SNAP is in the Farm Bill when it really is a social welfare program. Um, and secondly, what perspective or what possibilities do you see of the health implications of what you've been talking about being taken seriously and subsidies dramatically being right. reduced or being put towards healthier food choices? Great, great questions. And so let me just say, um, we're going to have to come back to talk about the Farm Bill, because there's so much to be said about the politics of that, uh, in part because the scope is so vast. Here's what we know. We know, well, we know that the Farm Bill has a long history in this country, and it was originally uh, uh, intended to help farmers, small farmers, individual farmers, family farmers, uh, uh, the collectives of farmers. Um, since the 1930s and 40s, politics has changed, and the politics of the Farm Bill 
has changed. By the way, it's never officially called the Farm Bill. Each iteration, including we now have a a Senate Agricultural Committee uh, um, version of the bill that has uh, got the word agriculture in it, but, uh, but, but that's about it. Um, and a House Agriculture Committee bill, um, they will go to the floor of the House shortly, uh, the floor of the House and Senate uh, in the next few weeks or months, sometime this summer. Um, and uh, you know, I did, this thing runs out in September. Uh, we're now on a one-year extension of the 2008 Farm Bill. Uh, the lion's share the vast majority of spending is for nutrition programs, right? And uh, for that, I need to go back to different, a different set of notes, but it is, um, uh, uh, we're talking about $200, $300 billion for, um, uh, over the last four years for uh, SNAP or food stamps versus uh, uh, under $100 uh, uh, billion for, for all of the other provisions. And it is really quite broad. So we spend much more on uh, nutrition programs, which go to individuals to supplement, not to feed them, but to supplement their income. Those numbers rose dramatically in uh, during the uh, economic downturn. In 2011, in an average month, 44.5 million Americans were eligible for, received uh, supplemental nutrition assistance benefits. The, and so what that means is you've got a huge amount of money going to a large number of people, uh, and the benefit itself is about 100, on average, $133 a month, right? That's not nothing. Multiply that by 44.5 million people, and you're talking about a huge expense. The money that we spend on uh, direct subsidies is also large. We spent in 2011 $4.6 billion on corn subsidies. This is money going to subsidize, uh, going to farmers based on the cost and the price of corn. Uh, it doesn't include disaster payments. It doesn't include crop insurance uh, um, uh, 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 subsidies for their premiums. There are proposals now to completely eliminate direct subsidies. That would be a very big change. Uh, most of those proposals uh, in Congress dramatically increase the subsidization of crop insurance premiums. So it evens out to some extent. The thing to keep in mind is that, one, there is much, much, much more spending on nutrition programs than agricultural subsidy programs. Two, that spending is far more diffuse. Millions of people getting very small subsidies from us versus very small numbers of farmers. We're talking in some years um, it, it can be under 10,000, right? Just a few thousand farmers getting very large amounts of money. And so what farmers, what agricultural uh, uh, producers get from subsidies on a per capita basis is much, much more than what uh, nutrition uh, supplement recipients get on a per capita basis. That's not, that's just an observation, right? Um, the House, the Senate um, has proposed cutting food stamps uh, SNAP benefits by $3.9 billion over 10 years. The uh, House has proposed cutting uh, uh, SNAP benefits by $20.5 billion over 10 years. Those are big differences, right? And part of what gets fought out over the next uh, uh, few weeks and months will be about those proposed cuts. Great question. A lot more to say about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, hi. Uh, Milton Hathaway, uh, Class of 68, Religious Studies. 
Uh, I've got two questions. Yeah. I hate to hog it, but first of all, we just moved back to Virginia a few years ago after being out of state 30 Welcome years. Welcome back. Uh, we're glad to be here. Uh, it just took us 30 years to figure out how to get back. Anyway, uh, I just have noticed since getting back the, the, the profusion of farmers' markets, locally grown food. Uh, we, we live in a rural county to the north. Uh, uh, farms, meat, so forth. That just did not, was yeah, not here. on? Yeah. How much is the university involved in reaching out to support these small family farms and, and food producers uh, as an institution uh, to become a locovore university, yeah, if great there's question. such a term? I just, I just made when, that when I say great question, um, imagine that I'm saying that in capital letters, red, and lots of exclamation points. Great question. Uh, a couple of years ago, Forbes.com called Charlottesville the locovore capital of the world. And half of the people said, we're the locomotive capital of the world. This is great. And the other half of us said, really? That doesn't sound right. Have you been to Berkeley? So uh, regardless of whether we're number one, two, or three, it's sort of like you know, UVA versus Michigan and Berkeley, um, I'm happy to be recognized as a place where there is really, your observations are right on the money, a phenomenal amount of excitement, energy, uh, entrepreneurship around local food. It's not all Joel Salatin, but Joel has had a big impact on uh, what a lot of people are doing here. Other people right in this area have been doing what Joel's been doing for almost as long. So you're absolutely right. Now, to answer your question, how much is the university doing? We're not Virginia Tech. We don't have an ag school. We don't work with extension. We are, uh, we're Mr. Jefferson's university, but Mr. Jefferson was a farmer. And there are many of us here who are asking the exact question that you are asking. What can we do to connect with, to bring our energy to these entrepreneurs, these startups, these uh, people who are working the land and, uh, and, and bringing their, their creativity uh, literally to market? And part of the answer is we've started to teach classes up at Morvan Farm and we've got a working kitchen garden that appropriately enough was started by and is run by UVA students, by undergraduates. They raised money, they hired a manager this year, they've got a CSA going. We have gardens all over the university. We have close relationships with dining services. We have close relationships with the local food hub. They are uh, people from the community, serve on the board of the UVA Food Collaborative. That would be www.virginia.edu food collaborative, learn, uh, we, I invite you to learn about what we're doing, come out to our, uh, our, our films, our forums, we had a GMO forum uh, a couple of months ago, we brought people in from all over the country to talk about genetically mod modified organisms and some of the uh, uh, issues around that. Um, that's the good answer, right? The other answer is, we'll have to wait and see. And I'm, one, oh, you I'm sorry to hog this, but getting hiding. back directly to this topic, yep. uh, I see at the local level uh, a tremendous health problem uh, brewing in the fact that because school systems are not funding their students' educations at an adequate level, yep. you see this tremendous intrusion of crap food and crap drinks in the schools that then the profits of which, it, it, which is a form of taxing, uh, it's kind of anti-budgeting, right. if you will, taxing the kids themselves who are sucking up the sodas all day long right. with a tremendous increase of student obesity 
and health problems that we only used to see in old people are now showing up in teenagers. Right, uh, uh, right. Hypertension, and, diabetes, uh, uh, dental deterioration, et cetera. Yep. So, so you're absolutely right. And in fact, uh, we used to call, we, public health officials used to call uh, uh, type 2 diabetes adult onset diabetes, and they don't anymore. And that's sad. Um, schools are where a lot of the action is, both in terms of what our children eat and what they learn. And so one of the things that UVA is doing really well, and it, oh, this is coming from student energy, is working with student gardens around the city of Charlottesville and in surrounding areas. We, uh, I have students who are not only helping to build and uh, teach kids how to work in gardens, but working on ways to integrate that into the curricula, right? In terms of nutrition, in terms of math, in terms of biology. And so that is one area where I think uh, there's a great deal of work to be done. Uh, there are people at UVA who are taking an interest in that. And there are people in Charlottesville who are trying to get sugar out of the city schools, right, as one step. Um, I brought uh, the head of the Charlottesville Cooking School up to Morvan Farm the other day to teach my students about uh, cooking, very, very uh, cursory introduction. She works with the city school system to get some healthy foods that she can help them and she can help teach kids how to prepare. So there, you're absolutely right. This is where we need to focus, and we're only at the very, very, very beginning. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Oh, oh, good. All right. One more question. Yes. I was alarmed with the charts you were showing uh -huh. and how quickly and precipitously yeah. we were getting fat. And, um, you know, you worry about, you go out a bit further, and now you're beyond 30%, you're getting to 40. And quickly the country gets to the point where we got over 40%. My question is, you're talking about soda. When does the expense that the state pays to pay for these issues related to obesity become so compelling that the state has to not only look at sugar, but they have to look at a lot of other foods that... Mm -hmm. Uh, have something to do with this obesity epidemic yep. that we're dealing with. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the problem of using soda as a case study is that uh, it, it, it helps feed, feed the notion, perhaps, that, uh, that it's just soda, right? That we don't have to look at fast food, that we don't have to look at processed food, and that we don't have to look at what else happens or doesn't happen in schools by way of physical education, by way of... Uh, uh, the proliferation of time spent on screens rather than outside. These are, it's a very complicated set, not just of political issues, but of economic issues, and I think cultural issues as well. Uh, and so I think you're absolutely right to say we need to broaden the discussion from a public health perspective uh, beyond uh, the role of soda. Absolutely. I would say as well, though, we want to broaden, um, we ought to broaden the discussion of food politics beyond obesity, right? That's one piece of it, but it's not the only piece, right? There are lots of other reasons. There are lots of other things that we didn't talk about. I didn't mention dead zones uh, in the Gulf of Mexico or, for that matter, the Chesapeake Bay caused by agricultural runoff, right? I didn't mention uh, the uh, globalization of genetically modified foods and what that might mean and what the unintended consequences might be, or alternatively, what the promise and potential of, GM, of genetic engineering might represent for people who are starving in different parts of the world. Let's remember, 
For most of human history, the problem of food was getting enough of it. We are pretty new at dealing with the problem of abundance of calories, right? We are still figuring out how to negotiate that. But in many parts of the world, they're still fighting the old battle, right? We don't have enough food. And I didn't even mention anything about water and what's going to happen to that if we keep going the way we're going in a global uh, uh, environmental sense. And so what I hope to leave you with is that uh, the politics of food might start with our dinner plates, might start with our children's lunch options, might start with what, kind of, what size soda we can buy in Nanny Bloomberg's city, right? but it doesn't end there. It, it is global and it is enduring. And as food citizens, not just of the United States, but of the world, we need to take it seriously. So now I thank you for your time. Have a wonderful reunion, and I'll see you soon. Thank you. Is it fun? Job.